Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I just want to remind listeners to please go to econtalk.org. And in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to our annual listener survey where you can vote for your favorite episodes of 2015. Please do it today. The survey will close on January 31st, so get out there and vote. Today is December 17th, 2015, and my guest is Greg Ipp of The Wall Street Journal. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. Greg, welcome to EconTalk. Russ, thanks for having me on. So I want to start with an image you start off early in the book, and it's an image, uh, a metaphor that that we use often here on the program, and I'm always happy to see uh, someone else use it. It's, I think, a fantastic uh, idea, and it is one that runs through your book. It's very, very interesting. And that is the relationship between the financial market and its potential for crisis and ecological systems, uh, in particular, uh, forest fires. So talk about what forest fires have to do with uh, Wall Street. I think what the environment, such as our forests and our economy, have in common is they're both complicated systems. And when you play with one part of it, you often have unintended consequences for another part of it. If you go back a century to what we call the progressive era, uh, both the U.S. Forest Service and the Federal Reserve were both created in this period, and actually for sort of similar reasons. In 1907, there was a severe financial panic, and that led to the creation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the ideal bank that could act as lender of last resorts, you wouldn't have runs on banks any longer, and panics would be uh, a thing of the past. At the same time, there were these devastating fires in the western United States that killed many people, and the Forest Service, which was quite tiny at the time, found a new lease on life, and its mission was to put all fires out because they viewed fires as wholly within the control of men, as the founding head of the Forest Service said at the time. What we, what we know a century later is that neither the Federal Reserve nor the Forest Service have fully put an end to the types of chaos they were designed to, to, to uh, get rid of. And it turns out that with these complicated systems, simply trying to take steps to prevent or end disaster will sometimes cause offsetting effects that actually make disaster more likely. And that's the theme that runs through my book. In the case of the Federal Reserve, by um, making recessions less frequent and less severe, they actually encourage the buildup of debt and other types of risk-taking. And in the case of the Forest Service, when they actually repeatedly suppress forests, they allow more fuel to accumulate on the forest floor, and they allow forests to become denser. And this means that when fires do get started, they become fiercer and hotter and more destructive. And we talked about this recently uh, in an episode with uh, George Selgin. And in particular, we talked about this this forest fire financial market uh, analogy. And one of the implications is, as you say, with forest fires, that the fires that do break out will eventually become so severe that they can't – they're very, very hard to put out. So the damage becomes much greater in terms of just acreage and and ferocity. Uh, The implication for the financial sector is is that as we try to – to dampen the swings in the economy, that the crises 
will get worse, or I guess a more accurate way to say it, if we could if we could create a great moderation that would last 50 years, one of the predictions of this idea is that the thing that would end it would be horrific rather than just unpleasant. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Now, obviously, we don't have depressions often enough that we can run a rigorous statistical regression on this sort of thing. So I wouldn't want to make heroic forecasts about what will happen if we have another 15 or 20 year great moderation. But I think the intuition is there. And the information that I um, dug up while I was researching my book, I think made a pretty convincing case. And it's not simply a matter of what our government authorities do. For example, one way of looking at this is, well, by putting, um, by preventing recessions and periodically rescuing banks that are about to fail, aren't you creating moral hazard and therefore just encouraging people to take more risks? That is true as far as it goes, but the story is actually a bit more complicated because uh, in some sense, preventing recessions is what central banks were supposed to do, and people naturally respond to that by saying, well, therefore, I'm going to do more of the investing and hiring and the good stuff that we want people to do that makes us prosperous. Secondly, a lot of the actions are taken by people themselves. So, for example, um, banks when they are in, in the financial system in the early 1980s, when we had so many banks teetering on collapse, our regulators actually took steps to make the banks safer by making them hold more capital. But better capitalized banks turned out to be less profitable banks. And so some of the lending activity that they used to do migrated out to the capital markets. It migrated out to companies that we now call shadow banks, yeah. and a less regulated, freewheeling sort of finance. The other thing that went on is that you had um, the financial engineers coming up with hedging instruments, derivatives, that were meant to reduce the risk for a bank considering buying a particular security or making a loan. And so this increased their appetite for risk-taking, not because they were deliberately trying to take risk, but because they thought they had something that made them safer. That's kind of the paradox at the center of this book. Yeah, and I love that. I love this idea that – I don't love it. I love the intellectual concept, though um, – <laughs> that this idea that as things get safer and safer, it's not just it, it, your book has has many many interesting stories and applications of these ideas, and it, you go beyond I think what the standard treatment is. And I, I you know I went into the book with with a little bit of trepidation because I've I've interviewed a lot of people and read about and thought a lot about these issues, but I learned a lot from the book anyway, which is I really uh, is was a happy surprise, and I recommend it. A lot to our listeners who are interested in these issues. I think there is you, – you try to make some connections that are often missed. So the standard story as well is things get safer, people get lulled into a false sense of security, for example. And that's part of it. But you're really trying to say something deeper about the nature of risk and safety, in particular when it is systemic, when it extends across an entire market or the globe and how the, the desire we have for safety, the desire we have for risk – inevitably pushes us to seek out instruments that investments and, and and techniques that make our life less dangerous and often they're scarce and so as a result there aren't enough to go around and as a result uh the system's more dangerous than than it appears is that an accurate summary of, of that overarching principle yeah, you've touched on some of the, I think, the key issues that I've touched on here. For example, I talk in my book about the uh, fallacy of composition. What uh, If doing something makes one person safe, then if everybody does it, they're all safer. But we know that's not really true. Now, just take the most basic example of fallacy of composition. You're watching a movie. You stand up to see it better. 
if everybody stands up, nobody sees it better, and eventually your feet start to hurt. And there's something that goes on, I think, in these systemic events. Think about building levees to protect a, a neighborhood or a town or part of a city from a flood. Well, even if the levee holds, its effect really isn't to get rid of the flood water, to push it, but to push it elsewhere. So sometimes protecting one city from a flood simply pushes water upstream or downstream and puts another city at greater risk of a flood. We saw that with these epic uh, floods in Thailand, for example, a few years ago, where in uh, Bangkok, there, had, there were like huge fights breaking out over whose neighborhood was going to flood and then, or whose levees were going to be uh, torn down. In the financial market, something similar goes on. So to go back to my example of the derivative, the financial engineers who designed the derivative said, this is, does not get rid of risk. It transfers risk, okay? I'm bank A. I buy this derivative. I can now make, uh, I'm now protected from the risk if this loan goes wrong. The person who sustains that damage if the loan goes wrong is bank B, who sold me that derivative. In theory, you find the derivative is supposed to redistribute risk from those who uh, don't want it to those who do want it. But what if everybody does the same thing and everybody individually buys a derivative from everybody else? Each person thinks they're protected, but in fact, everybody has bought protection, which means that nobody's protected because everybody's exposed to the decline. It's as somebody told me as I was researching this book, it's as if you were uh, buying insurance on a from somebody else who's on the Titanic. And I think we had an, an, uh, have an element of that in our financial system. Now, in the insurance industry, insurance companies are happy to sell you life insurance because not everybody dies at the same time. The risks that they're insuring are essentially not correlated. But with systemic events like financial crises or earthquakes, correlations are very high. It is very likely that if Bank A fails, then the events that cause it to fail could also threaten the life of Bank B. B. And so if Bank A bought protection from Bank B, they're not really protected. And that's what we saw in the financial crisis. A lot that's, of banks thought they were protected because they bought insurance from AIG against the default of their subprime investments. But it turns out that once enough banks did that, AIG's own existence was threatened because it had sold too much insurance, as it were, against this earthquake. Yeah, I want to talk about – I was going to talk about AIG later, but while we're on, on the subject, let's, let's talk about it now. Um, and I think it's uh, – your treatment of the of the issues surrounding AIG and the financial crisis generally are some of my favorites. Uh, Maybe the best I've read, and I've read quite a bit on the crisis. I, I do have one thing I I disagree with. We'll, we'll come to that, but just in terms of the pure clarity of your description, uh, there's a lot of detail and um, insight in the way you discuss it. So the AIG bailout, uh, the creditors of AIG, the people who were owed payments uh, people, the institutions mostly, uh, were very, were very uh, large and they had large amounts of money that they were expecting as, as insurance payments from AIG or the equivalent of insurance payments. And so I often describe the bailout of AIG as a bailout of, of Goldman Sachs. It's a bailout of, uh, I think it was Societe Generale, the French bank. Um, Deutsche Bank, I think, was the, other, were in the was in the top five. So a bunch of large financial institutions or the main beneficiaries of the government bailout, the, the, the money that the, that the government provided to AIG was – AIG was a conduit really. But as you point out, and I think it should have been kind of obvious, uh, people should have been aware when they bought that insurance that if everybody bought it and they were all insuring against the same thing, well, then the question was, was AIG uh, reliable and likely to pay off and how – how much backstop did they have? And the great thing you have in your book, which I love, is when you talk about the fact that Goldman 
when confronted with this claim that, oh, it was really a bailout of Goldman, they, oh, no, 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 we, we're smarter than that. We had, we had insurance, even on AIG, we were doubly insured. But yeah. that was, that's not quite true. So explain why not. Well, because who did AI, or I mean, you're right. I mean, Goldman Sachs is an interesting kind of company because they uh, were bearish on the subprime market before anybody else. And they were one of the few that was not holding large amounts of exposure when the uh, roof fell in in 2008. Uh, And one of the reasons why was because they actually bought these insurance policies from people like AIG that would go up in value as the subprime market went down. Well, then the question came up, well, what if the insurance companies that sold them these policies went bankrupt like AIG? And as you say, their claim was we would have been fine because we bought insurance against AIG failing. But if you look at who they bought that insurance from, they bought it from people like Lehman, who did fail, and Citigroup, who would have failed if the federal government had bailed them out. And the point that I'm making here is that this is you have to understand the difference between a bank failure and a systemic crisis. Sometimes a bank can fail because the things that affect it are very idiosyncratic. Think about bearings, for example, that went uh, went under because one of its traders ran up a billion dollars in losses. In a systemic event, everybody, the good, the bad, the middle ground, are all being sucked under. And a Goldman Sachs Everybody around it was going under. Uh, the lesson here is that you, uh, no system can insure itself. And that is why the role of the federal government as the insurer of last resort is so important at events at times like that. Okay, I want to I push back on that for a minute in a minute. But first, I want to point out that uh, one way to think about your, your point about AIG is that what, what Goldman needed to uh, get ins- insurance from was like a Martian bank where there was no housing <laughs> crisis. You needed to go outside right. the system. And there is eventually – Nothing outside the system. And I think, again, that's and by a, the way, Russ, knowing Goldman, I'm sure they looked into it. <laughs> yes, they did. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and possibly after seeing the Martian, they, they were fooled into thinking it really was a possibility. Uh, but, I, but I want to talk about the role of the government and, and there are many roles that has played in the, you know, in the last 25, 30 years in, in potentially increasing uh, moral hazard. And I'm a big advocate of that as part of the problem. Uh, and not part of the solution. But you're right. In, at some level, the government, especially the U.S. government in the, in the story we're talking about, was the backstop, was the insurer of last resort. And I would argue, and, and you, you, you're not unaware of this argument, I would argue that that is the source of the problem, not the solution. In any one time, it looks like the solution because things are falling apart. But I would argue that since there's so many interconnections, uh, they're there that makes the argument that, yeah, it's got to be the government because it's systemic. But isn't it also equally possible that those systemic relations would never persist if people were really – if it was a credible argument, belief that the government would not bail people out? Isn't the very the, – the blindness, the myopia about that systemic risk, isn't that fundamentally a view saying that, well, I don't have to worry about the systemic risk because there's always this Uncle Sam who will step in? And wouldn't those risks be more – wouldn't investors and, and institutions be more aware of systemic risk if there was if there was not a bailout of last resort? Russ, at some level, you have, that must be true. I mean it must be true that the fact that people know that the federal government can be uh, there to save us has got to be a factor in, in – um, a very simple example is deposit insurance. It was created in the 1930s to prevent uh, runs on banks. 
And FDR uh, was at first very reluctant to sign that into law. Well, he opposed because it. He had mocked he it, it as a candidate when he was running for president. Right. And he had, no, he had when he was governor. Sorry, when he was governor but, of New York, oh, he mocked right? it. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got the, a, your history on that is better than mine, Russ. I'll put a so, link up um, to it. I've got a little write-up of that. So he legitimately worried that uh, federal deposit insurance would weaken the um, oversight that depositors themselves are supposed to bring to the banks that, that held their money. And so the answer was, if you're going to have deposit insurance, then you have to regulate these banks much more tightly. And so in some sense, yes, we created a market an externality, a market failure by introducing deposit insurance, but we also tried to address that with um, uh, proper regulation. You get into much more trouble when you create this exter externality, but you also do not create create the regulation. In the case of the most recent event, the most obvious example would be Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These were essentially private shareholder companies that had implicit government guarantees for their borrowing. And that um, advantageous cost of uh, capital enabled them to take much larger positions in the mortgage market than were good for them. And they were certainly contributors to the financial crisis that we had. That said, I don't think that's the full story or even most of the story, because one of the things that I became convinced of as I read this book is that, our, is that even... Um, is that human memories are not long enough to fully incorporate all the experience of the past. And over a 25-year great moderation, it was hard for me to believe that people could remember what had happened like in the 70s and the early 80s, and that had affected how they were deciding what to do. And in fact, there were instances, and this is fascinating, of because it goes to my point about how risk evolves, of of Wall Street behaving specifically to get around the safety net. So, for example, if you're a bank that accepts deposits, you have to actually pay insurance premiums on those deposits. Um, you also have to, like, submit to bank regulation. And that's why one of the reasons this money migrated to places where none of those things were true, into money market mutual funds, which were originally designed to get around rules over banks and into uh, so-called asset-backed commercial paper conduits. And I don't want to blow the heads up of anybody listening to this by getting into some of this esoterica. But um, to, to, to go to an example from the environment, people, uh, well, there's some interesting research on how people respond to floods. Uh, hurricanes, you would think, come often enough that people would always incorporate the risk of being hit by a hurricane into their decisions. And they do. Uh, this research has found that um, people, after a hurricane, people rush it and they buy flood insurance. And they also build their houses better. <laughs> Research has found that homes built right after a hurricane survived the next hurricane much better. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? But the problem is, is that after a few years without a hurricane, people begin to forget. And because the memories are less vivid, that begins to change their behavior. They drop their flood insurance policies. They stop building their homes as strongly as they did. And even this is even in the situations where they have economic incentives to do it properly, where they are penalized by their flood insurance. It turns out that human memories simply are not long enough to apply the appropriate weights to events that happened long ago to their behavior going forward. Yeah. And this is why um, the risks are so great the longer you go without an event. Well, it cuts both ways, as you, as you, are, as you point out as well in the book. I mean, right after a hurricane, people might tend to overreact about how risky a hurricane is. Maybe after 25 years or 50 or whatever it is, as time passes, people start to think, well, it'll never happen to me or won't happen here or they just literally forget. They're unaware of it. But I, I want to come back to the um, to the point you made about uh, the FDIC and and regulation that that FDR felt was necessary. And I, I have to I haven't quoted this in a long time. Long time listeners are going to be um, happy to hear me quoting Hayek, my favorite Hayek quote, which is the the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about 
what they imagine they can design. So you start off, you have FDIC insurance, and you think, well, if I do that, if banks know that they're going to be bailed out, and if customers know that the banks are going to be bailed out, then we better restrict what kind of interest rates banks can offer. And similarly, once we say we're going to bail out large financial institutions, we're going to have rules about leverage. We're going to say there's a certain cushion you have to keep. Uh, and you might argue, well, but don't they want to do that anyway to encourage confidence and trust from people who, who give them their money? And the answer is, well, normally they would. But if people know that the government can step in, they don't have to do that. And so naturally, the government then requires it. So, you know, in one sense, a lot of the crisis can be described as the relentless attempt by financial institutions to exploit their government uh, guarantee despite despite the regulations put in place to reduce the likelihood of it or to raise the price of, of, of misbehavior. So sure, there was you had to invest, you had to hold a lot of AAA assets, but as, as, uh, as you point out in the book, they're scarce. And as a result, they found creative ways to create what looked like AAA assets that turned out not to be AAA assets. So it yeah. is, uh, I, I take your point that it, it's an inevitable trade-off uh, of security versus risk taking that that makes an that it makes an argument for the government as as the insurer of last resort, but you do have to confront the fact that as a result, you create a system that is actually inherently fragile, inherently almost uh, it's almost impossible uh, to, to avoid a another crisis, and I think your title of your book is 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 key foolproof foolproof's a mistake. We shouldn't be shooting for foolproof. We should be shooting for uh, something that's where the costs of a failure are small relative to the potential uh, disaster. And I think our policy with respect to financial institutions has failed that criterion. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think I might have a difference of opinion about exactly just how important that government guarantee yeah, was uh, with respect to the crisis. Well, I think that uh, what I thought was interesting is the extent to which as uh, the uh, private sector tried to actually develop devices of their own that they thought, where they thought the government safety net was actually unnecessary because their brilliance had designed <laughs> things that were supposed to be AAA. A little sure while enough. ago, I, a little while ago, I saw the movie, uh, The Big Short, which is in theaters now reliving all the uh, craziness and Insanity of the um, of the financial crisis and the derivatives that were t- uh, created, and it ha- has a familiar uh, narrative that these Wall Street guys were deliberately taking big risks. Um, but what I think it, uh, which and it's an entertaining story, and for sure that was part of it. But what I think it's it's not including in that story is the extent to which these Wall Street guys honestly thought that what they were doing wasn't that risky. They thought that a double A or AAA rated security had so much protection through various ways. There's just no way this thing could uh, blow up. And I would say that in terms of going forward, this is one of the challenges for um, we as the public and citizens and our government is how do you create a financial system? How do you create an economy that both gives us the safety that we need to both be happy and to prosper and to take risks without destroying ourselves, but doesn't create those fatal levels of complacency 
And there has to be some kind of trade-off between these things that we're talking about. Um, I don't want to take away the ability of the Federal Reserve to basically move in as lender for last resort when things really are grim. But nor do I want those powers being used for every garden variety crisis that comes along. There's got to be a way to allow even the largest banks to fail or whatever our legal definition of failure is for something like that. And the knowledge that that can happen will change the behavior both of the bankers and the people who are lending money to those banks. So let me, let me push back and uh, give you a chance to respond. Uh, it, it's certainly true that um, the, some of the people involved, maybe a lot of them, in the, at the height of the run-up to the crisis were blissfully unaware. They were, um, they were dancing uh, on the Titanic. To the, they were waltzing while the, while the band played and uh, were blissfully unaware that a large earth iceberg was looming. So I, I accept that. Then I think the next question is, if if they had if we had allowed them to suffer the financial pain, which of course many Americans did, but not as many on Wall Street, if we had made the decision makers suffer through the some of the serious costs, that is wiping them out, instead of Bear Stearns creditors being made whole, they had paid a serious price and maybe lost almost everything, as we we did with Lehman uh, a few months later. If that had happened. Well, it would have been bad. It certainly would have been bad for the people who, who had to deal with it. And it would have created a really big signpost and a lesson. Now it's true, memories are short, but I think if, if it's really awful, the memories tend to last longer. And for people spending large sums of money, they have an incentive to pay attention. So I th- my problem is, is that if you're always, um, if you promise that you'll always be uh, hovering over the, the Titanic with, with a new set of lifeboats, they will drive less carefully, and that's just uh, that's bad. That's bad policy for the taxpayer. It's a bad policy for capitalism. It's a bad policy for democracy because we see these folks being bailed out, and uh, it's true that some of them lost a lot of money. But even after that, they also most of them did pretty well. Um, you might be right. Um, this is a you know this is in the category of, of historical what ifs that we'll never get a chance to run. Um, and, uh, at some level would allowing Bear Stearns to have failed in the spring of 98 made the subsequent failures less bad? Possibly. You're talking about, you're talking about not, you mean LCTM. You, you said 98. You, you were. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say 98? I meant yeah. to say 2008. Gosh. But there was also, a, there was also a 98. There's a lot of them. There's, you write about <laughs> most right. of them. You write about the 98. Well, I, you write about the, you didn't spend much time on the 94 Mexican bailout, but you did yeah. refer to it earlier when I wasn't as much, I didn't know much about, um, yeah. And the one, by the way, my other my other uh, example, I think, which which I've used and which I think you which you reference very uh, thoughtfully, is the reserve primary, the money market fund that yeah. broke the bank. That many yeah. would argue was a really precipitating. Uh, I would think was probably the scariest moment, uh, probably in the halls of Washington and the Federal Reserve. That when when it looked like maybe money market funds were going to be at risk of a run, and um, what the heck were they doing? Holding seven hundred and eighty-five million. I'm reading this straight from your book. Seven hundred eighty-five yeah. million dollars of short-term debt from Lehman Brothers. Yeah. And the answer is because they just seen Bear Stearns, which had a very similar balance sheet, do okay. Yeah. So they thought, hey, I get a good return. Let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably the best example you can find actually of how the rescue of Bear Stearns actually caused some people to take uh, to be um, uh, oblivious to the possibility that this would. Um, 
uh, spread to other firms because this is actually a company, the reserve fund. And actually, let's step back, step back a minute, uh, Russ, and just talk about how money funds got started in the first place. The money market mutual fund is uh, at its essence a, a form of regulatory arbitrage. In the 70s, banks were, were regulated in the, in the interest rates they could pay deposits. But if you were a big institutional investor, you could get better rates by investing in wholesale uh, money, fun, uh, money markets. So the money market mutual fund was invented essentially to create a pool of these types of uh, higher yielding um, investments that ordinary retail investors could uh, access. Um, and they were designed to be as safe as bank deposits, so they would only hold government uh, paper or uh, bank-guaranteed certificates of deposit. Um, but, you know, as the 2000s uh, evolved, um, competition being what it is um, and um, uh, reach for yield being what it is, uh, Reserve Fund, which was the granddaddy of these funds, began buying other types of riskier stuff, commercial paper. And as you move into the financial crisis period, they're owning paper by Merrill Lynch and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. And in the aftermath, you have to ask, well, what were they thinking? Why were they holding this stuff? At some element, perhaps they were assuming that they wouldn't fail. But on the other hand, the uh, rating agencies were assuming uh, something similar because th these had very highly rated paper. And indeed, the Friday before Lehman's failed, um, that paper, uh, Lehman's paper itself was rated top notch. So perhaps at some level, the rating agencies had succumbed to that same assumption that it would not be allowed to fail. But here's what I sort of think is interesting about reserve fund. You're absolutely right. I think I, I remember a Fed official saying that of all the scenarios they went through the weekend before Lehman went bankrupt, the one uh, bad part that they really did not take on board was that a reserve, that a money market fund would break the buck. Right. And the consequences went well beyond that 700 odd million dollars that which investors you point lost out, on a Lehman paper. Yeah. Which, as you point out, was a small part of their, it's very, very small, under 2% of their portfolio. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the risk, this is kind of what a panic is like. And in my book, I talk about how this is similar to when somebody uh, dies from E. coli on their spinach or their tomatoes, you know, it's I mean, just people swear the stuff off from coast to coast. And similarly here, when people realize the world's oldest uh, reserve money market mutual fund could be holding toxic stuff, money just poured out of all the funds just like that. And because these funds had become such important sources of lending to the financial system, this was in some way possibly more serious than Lehman's failure. Right. And so once again, you have the assumption of safety that's allowed to spring up around a particular entity, creating risks or, or complacency that then just explodes. And what I think is ironic is that when all was said and done, as we were discussing, the, the reserve fund still paid back more, a little bit over 99 cents on the dollar. Uh, Lehman was its only losing position. And um, Gary Gorton, who we could talk about as an economist who specializes in the history of panics, has gone back and looked at bank panics in the 1800s. And the worst bank failures at those times, th those banks still managed to pay back all but two cents on the dollar of their deposits. So I find it interesting that the 19th century and 21st century of a bank run had essentially the same outcome, which is that most of the depositors got their money back, but the panic uh, by people in the moment was incredibly destructive. Yeah, the other part that's destructive, I, you, you only talk about this in passing, but you mentioned it earlier in our conversation today. The other part that's destructive that's much harder to see is the poor use of scarce capital. So it's not just that some investors lose their money in a bank run, and, and your point is correct, that you know maybe it's not as bad as it looks. The psychological ramifications are really uh, are what create this implication of panic. If you told them in advance, hey, by the way, you might lose 2%, you'd say, well, it's not so bad. I'm not going to panic about that. And you get all the good stuff along the way. My problem is some of the good stuff is not good. 
So to devote a trillion dollars to new and larger houses is yeah. really a bad allocation of, of, of scarce capital. And I, and I really deeply resent this view that says, um, you know, the financial sector is doing God's work. I think that's a quote from Lloyd Blankfein uh, because, you know, they're yeah. allocating capital to its highest use. Well, its highest use is true when the incentives are right. When the incentives are wrong, it's not its highest use. And we end up throwing away uh, a lot of potential growth that, that, that looks like growth when it's happening. So the boom which which looks like the the benefit side is actually not as beneficial as it looks. It's a measured boom. It's a lot of of growth in in housing and there's a lot of economic activity, but the true value of it is as high as it otherwise would be. So I think that's part of the issue. Yes. Now let me touch on something in my book that I think addresses this question, which is the nature of the risks that we take. And um, I think that at some level, and I think people especially who are more inclined to have the government play a more active role, uh, feel that. Uh, the goal of society and of government should be to encourage us to take good risks that can produce all sorts of wonderful innovations and not bad risks that can produce things like financial crises. But what I concluded after researching my book was that that's really kind of just impossible. It's fantasy that we can somehow distinguish ex ante what are the good risks and what are the bad risks. And in that book, I talk about this interesting experiment that some economists and neuroscientists did with people who have brain damage. And these people, um, the damage to their brain means they don't feel uh, an emotional sense of fear when bad things happen. So when they're encouraged to play a card game, which is a losing card game, they keep on playing until they've lost their money, whereas normal people, the sense of fear interferes and they stop playing. And this seems to tell you, though, well, this shows that um, unless you have a normal sense of fear, you end up really hurting yourself. But then an economist actually re-ran the experiment using a different game that actually was a winning game, not a losing game. It was actually designed to pay off. And they found that this time, if the people whose brains didn't allow them to feel fear ended up ahead in the game, then the they people kept, who ended up behind. They kept playing. Yeah, they, so, kept, uh, they kept playing, yeah. Whereas the people who uh, had normal brains, as soon as they lost money, they stopped playing. And I use this as kind of an allegory for like capitalism in general, because there's a lot of uh, risks that people take, which are ex ante, just don't make any sense. Like opening a restaurant, like yeah, most restaurants still. Why would anybody open a yeah. restaurant? Well, thank goodness somebody brain, does. They're brain damaged, obviously. <laughs> well, but, yeah. Maybe, That's yeah. You know? But, but, but I mean, I, we I all know somebody is, like this, you know, who, who takes a chance like this, and uh, some of them end up losing their shirts, but then some of them end up showing up at your uh, high school reunion in 20 years' time, really wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, boy, I wish served. I was lucky, but you got to hand it to them. You know, they took that risk. You know, one of the, most of those. People who started restaurants lost money, but one of them ended up starting McDonald's. One of them ended up starting Starbucks. And we want that to happen. And we don't know in advance the ones that are going to succeed and the ones that are going to fail. And at a larger level, I completely agree that I would not, that it's a terrible trade off to run these risks and borrow all this money to build houses that ended up not being lived in. But on the other hand, I can remember 15 years ago when people were making the same, the same, had the same concerns about the NASDAQ bubble and the tech uh, bubble. And a lot of things did come about as a result of that bubble. I'm not sure that I want somebody telling me or society as a whole, it's okay to take these risks, but it's not okay to take those risks. Because I don't think anyone knows in advance which are the risks that are going to pay off. And I would say one of the things that troubles me a bit in the last seven years is that I think the pendulum has swung from being too far towards taking risk to, to taking too little risk. Uh, if you look at what companies are doing these days, they're not investing sitting heavily in new products. They're sitting on their money. They're buying back stock. They're merging with each other. Uh, banks have been so heavily regulated or so 
beaten by lawsuits or losses that they don't want to lend to small businesses. They've uh, people who might be good good uh, homeowners can't get credit because the pendulum has swung too far away. And I, so I think one of the things I'm trying to say in my book is that we need to be adults about risk. Is that we cannot have a system that gets rid of all possibility of disaster and crisis because if we do that we'll end up without some of the positive things that come from risk taking whether it's investing in startup companies or building cities on the coastline where they might be hit by a hurricane yeah i totally agree with you that that um there are many beneficial things that come from risk uh i i think the uh maybe our differences is that i'm much less um enthusiastic about uh great moderations that come from uh, the sense that risk taking is okay because the government's going to rescue us. You know, the, the the Nasdaq bubble was a to the extent it was a bubble. I have trouble. I don't I don't like that word so much. But to the extent that there were a lot of companies that tried new things and some of them didn't work and some of them did. The only people that propped that up artificially were the investors. You know, the, the investors in Amazon. Amazon might not have made it. It turned out it seems to have made it. It's not a hundred percent clear. I think it's a profitable company. But for a long time, it was very much in doubt. And my view was, you know, God bless Jeff Bezos and all the people who put money into it. I'm getting relatively inexpensive books in a very short period of time, and, I, and it's wonderful. And that was the benefit, even if they hadn't made it. But if they didn't make it, the people who would have paid the price would have been those investors. They would have learned a lesson. And I, the tragedy, I think, of our current situation is the people who are learning the lesson, unfortunately, are you and me. Uh, the taxpayers, and we don't see that lesson so clearly. A lot of people are angry that the banks made a lot of money. I'm not sure they see these connections that we're talking about, and the political market doesn't work quite as well as we might like. So what's the probability that it'll keep happening? And it's pretty high, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, I wish I had the perfect answer to this. <laughs> um, uh, I don't. <laughs> but um, let, maybe I could just bring up a couple of other points here, because we've talked a lot about the financial system. And one of the things that I've, um, I was exploring as I researched this book was how the larger macro forces that you and I have been talking about manifest themselves at a micro level too. And things that are, are, yeah, things that Perfect are like anodyne as like playing football or, that's where I was, that's where I was headed. So let's actually, let's okay. talk about the Peltzman sure. effect. Uh, Sam Peltz has been a guest on the program and let's talk about traffic, uh, traffic deaths and, um, the challenges of making cars safe. Uh, yeah. Now, I, I think you I remember uh, you saying that, telling me earlier that Sam was one of your teachers or yeah, a, a colleague I, of yours. I, I, no, I was his TA. He was my professor and I was his TA. And uh, trust me, he dressed just as flamboyantly in 1978 as he does now. Actually, so maybe you, a little more because the stores he used to shop in. I think he's told me that, that, that a lot of them don't exist anymore. So he's, he yeah, struggles right. to keep his wardrobe up to up to date, and it's flamboyance. So yeah. So for listeners who aren't able to visualize this, so I show up, and here's uh, Sam Peltzman, this famous irascible uh, sort of anti-establishment economist, and he's wearing this like. Um, if I recall, um, a fuchsia-colored jacket and yep. check plaid pants. <laughs> Sometimes they're lime green. Just, uh, yeah. He's very colorful. Love yeah, it. love no, it. He, Black he, shirt. He, 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 could be a black shirt with that outfit. 
He told me that he was he was a contrarian from childhood. That as a uh, a kid on his street in Bensonhurst, he was the only person he knew who was for Truman. <laughs> so um, so so Peltzman, in true um, contrarian fashion, in the 1970s, well, going back to the 1960s, uh, for the first time, there's federal regulation of automobiles, and uh, this requires, for example, installation of safety belts. In the 1970s, uh, uh, some jurisdictions go a step further, and they require the wearing of safety belts. So what Sam wanted to know was, well, does wearing seat belts actually change the behavior of the people who drive the cars? And his hypothesis was that if people felt safer, they would drive faster. Because you think of um, the risk of an accident as being part of the price of driving fast, then if you lower that price, make the risk smaller, you should do more of it. And this is what his early research found, that uh, the presence of seatbelts and other safety devices seemed to encourage drivers to go faster and more and more. While drivers were less likely to die, you had more pedestrian accidents. And this was, as you can imagine, a pretty uh, radical and surprising finding. Controversial. And we've yeah, very, very <laughs> controversial. People didn't like it. And we've seen people explore elements of that in other walks of life, such as sports. Now, it turns out that once you do lots and lots of research, um, and Sam himself points this out, is that the pure Peltzman effect in the sense that cars are less safe with seatbelts is not true. It does turn out that you get fewer deaths with seatbelts than without. However, the effects are not as positive as the designers expected. So there, There's an offset. does seem to be some an offset. And I think one of the, the, our jobs when we try to evaluate these questions, Russ, is to find out whether that offset or how big that offset is. Is it just small, in which case go ahead, let's have the same. Is it quite large? Does it completely negate that improvement? So a good example of this is driver's education. The assumption since the 1930s is that if you had your kid take driver's ed, he'd be less likely to have accidents and drive more safely. Well, it turns out that's not true. Uh, driver's education does not seem to reduce uh, accidents among young drivers. In fact, because it enables young drivers to get their license sooner, you actually get more accidents. Why? It just happens to be that young drivers, are, they think they're immortal, and it's very hard to change their attitudes towards risk, even with driver's education. Uh, Anti-lock brakes are another interesting example. They were thought to be the most uh, miraculous safety innovation to come along since seatbelts, but the research is pretty conclusive that anti-lock brakes do not reduce accidents. And when you study the behavior of people with anti-lock brakes, you find that often they seem to be driving differently. In some instances, for example, they brake harder. The result, fewer front-end collisions, more rear-end collisions. Um, what One of the most interesting insights I gained while I was working on this book is that one of the things that determines whether a safety innovation makes us safer or not is how does it actually affect our tasks. Seatbelts, most people nowadays don't even think about seatbelts. They put them on, they forget they're wearing them. It doesn't really affect what they do from second to second. But with things like anti-lock brakes or other uh, types of devices, um, it actually does seem to affect what people do, uh, the, the way they drive. They think, oh, I've got those anti-lock brakes, I've got those roll bars, I've got whatever, I'm going to do something, or, or snow tires. Uh, I've got better control, I've got better braking, I'm going to drive faster. So, if the, And I make the same analogy to financial derivatives. Derivatives make the bank or the hedge fund or whoever's using it believe that they can now do something that they couldn't do before. They can take a larger position. They can make a bigger bet because they've used the derivative to, to protect they're, themselves. They're wearing seat belts. Risk. <laughs> right? No, they're using anti-lock brakes. Oh, it's even, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, that's, uh, uh, I mean, I thought that was a fantastic um, subtlety and, I, and I'm 
uh, even though I'm a big fan of Sam's and I and I'm I'm sympathetic to the seatbelt hypothesis. I think the idea that there are some forms of safety that are more salient that you're more aware of because you're using the brakes all the time and you don't really feel the seatbelt after a while. It's an interesting psychological uh, effect that might make a difference between the two cases. Yeah, and um, the example of football helmets, I think, is especially sure. uh, relevant here. So uh, 100 years ago, kids didn't wear helmets, and people often died playing football. Theodore Roosevelt at one point uh, called all the heads of the universities and for uh, for, and read them the riot act and got to stop. By the 1940s, um, the leather helmets that the players were wearing were, were being replaced by hard helmets, which provided much more protection. The coaches also realized that because their players' heads were so well protected, they can now use their their heads to spear opposing players. The defensive player was a much more formidable defensive uh, uh, player than one just using his arms. But this actually brought with it a different risk, which was put your head down, you load all this pressure on the final column. And so as the players began using their heads like as battering rams, you had to surge the number of broken necks and uh, quadriplegias. So a perfect example of how the presence of a safety device changed the behavior of the person using it. Eventually, both the NCAA and the NFL outlawed spearing because they realized this was a problem, but they have not fully been able to attenuate the effect on the player's behavior of having these helmets. And the leading cause of concussions in the NFL these days is helmet-to-helmet hits. They have, despite all the efforts to educate uh, the players and to change the rules to make certain hits illegal and to... um, uh, essentially penalize uh, that behavior, they're still getting a lot of helmet-to-helmet hits and a lot of concussions. Yeah, one of the challenges there, as any football fan will know, and we see this every single week, uh, when there is a collision, uh, watching it in real time, which is what the referees have to do to call a penalty, and then watching it in slow motion is very different, and the, pe- the referees have to call the penalties in real time. And it's... Um, it's not so easy to say, I'm not going to tackle with my head. I'm going to use my shoulder. It's very hard to, it's a gray continuum. So one of the obvious solutions, which you of course mentioned is, well, let's get rid of the helmets. Yeah. That would certainly, then just like those uh, uh, breaks are, are always being reminding you that you're too, that you're falsely encouraging you to be reckless. The not wearing the helmet would definitely encourage you to be careful. Yeah. I asked a neurosurgeon about this, and he said, yeah, yeah, if you got rid of the helmets, you'd have fewer concussions, but you probably have more skull fractures. Uh, the truth is, I don't know. Uh, I do know that if you look at rugby, where they are not permitted to wear hard helmets, they do seem to have far fewer um, head injuries and far fewer concussions. But the thing that you, st- you have to step back and, less and entertaining. Um, realize. It's a less entertaining and popular it's a le- game. It is a, diff- <laughs> it, is a di- it is a different game. And so one of the points that uh, I make in my book is that you have to account for the fact that people have certain appetites for risk. People who go to watch football want to see a really hard-hitting game. That, you know, the possibility of injury, I hate to say it, is one of the things that makes the game exciting because it's associated with just how fiercely those players go at each other. And the players themselves believe the same thing. I mean, for a long time, Monday Night Football had a picture of two helmets colliding and shattering with a a lightning bolt coming from them. I think that just speaks to the kind of spectacle. People come to see a football game, not a rugby game. And by the sports, each year the players get bigger because the bigger players are stronger, they're faster, they hit each other harder. That's what thrills people. It's what they want to see. 
Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. I think the, the key question for me, and it's not the way everybody would view it, of course, but the way I view it is it's a big difference between making a decision to be a football player and ignorance versus knowledge. And I think the tragedy of, of football, and I haven't seen it yet, but there's a new movie out called Concussion with Will Smith. It's coming out, I think, in a week. Um, the tragedy is I, everybody understood that football is a dangerous game, obviously. I don't think they understood just how dangerous it was. Now we do know that, and as I, we know something about it. We don't, mean, we don't know everything. But as a result, a lot of parents, and some of them are football players, are saying, I want my kid to be something else. I've got, you know, I have a wonderful athletic ability, and it could be used elsewhere. I want my kid to play soccer, baseball, basketball. They're profitable. They're wonderful, lucrative opportunities for, for kids to, who are in the, the top half of a half of a half a percent. And um, why risk it with football? Yet, there are other people who say, I love football. I'll take a chance. It's not a certainty. I think if you were, if it were certain that after eight years, as 10 years as an NFL player, you would have brain damage, that the sport would disappear. And it, I think it is at some risk of disappearing if they don't find a way to reduce this risk. They've made, a, they've made a step now, right? They have the concussion protocol, which is, I think, it's a good, it's a step. I don't know if it'll be sufficient. No one knows. We'll find out. So I think one of the things that uh, goes into this uh, equation is what um, does the public or society expect? What is their appetite for risk? So the fe- what you're pointing to is that in many families and in many communities, they do not believe uh, that the risks involved in playing fo- football are worth the athletic experience or the spectacle that they've enjoyed. People's attitudes are changing. And this is something that's happening over time is that we as a society have become much more attached to safety. And indeed, you could say it is one of the progressions of affluence, yeah, that as we sure. become wealthier, more safety is one of the things we purchase. And this is actually one of the points that Sam Peltzman made very astutely in his work on automobile safety, because he was able to show that automobile accidents and fatalities had been on a long declining trend even before the federal government stepped in in the 1960s and began uh, in uh, creating and enforcing all these new regulations. In fact, if you look at it, basically an 80 to 100 year trend of automobile fatalities, it's very hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not exactly straight. It's pretty but close. It's definitely hard to see the effect of increased regulation. And what does this tell us? Well, a lot of people don't realize this, but safety belts were originally an option. Automakers introduced them because they thought there might be people out there who would like having safety belts. The same with anti-lock brakes. A lot of the things that we now associate with the nanny state imposing on us were, in fact, um, yep. options uh, that were added because the automakers surmised that some people might actually want this. And indeed, people will now routinely pay thousands of dollars for optional upgrades to their cars for things like electronic stability control and anti-collision stuff. And th- this is one of the things that we have to realize is that when you're trying to figure out why things have gotten safer, is it because somebody stepped in and made it safer or is it because people's risk appetites changed? And um, again, this is where the research can answer the question because you can study this quite closely. But I think in the case of automobiles, while I do believe safety belts and safety belt laws have helped, the singularly most important trend going on is that over time, we as drivers, we as families and parents are put a much higher priority on safety. And we have the basic, and by the way, we have the affluence and the, and the disposable income to purchase these things that we couldn't have before. There are times when this arguably goes a, a bit too far. Um, the whole uh, issue over free range parenting, which I'm sure you've heard about, sure. this is 
the idea that it's somehow considered radical to actually let your, you know, um, uh, preteen children walk to school by themselves. Uh, the um, we as parents have probably, in some cases, gone a bit too far in being overprotective of our children. I'm not making the case that this is leading to more injuries to our children, but it is arguably depriving them of interesting experiences as they grow up. So this is all a matter of getting the balance right. And But the only point I was trying to make is that um, our whether or not we are as safe as a society has a lot to do with what our fundamental tolerance is for harm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think um, as an example of uh, that um, – Pre-range parenting, the in the opposite, we've had uh, Moises Velasquez Manoff as a guest. Uh, I'm looking at the date here, back in 2014 in March, where he argues in his book *An Epidemic of Absence* that in our relentless desire to purge our personal ecosystems, our bodies of parasites and and other disease, uh, diseases, we've encouraged a set of autoimmune diseases to expand uh, that wasn't. Our attention, of course, but there's no free lunch, unfortunately. And uh, we make our children safer by giving them a clean environment, and they're more likely to get sick when they get older. We make it safer by keeping them away from excitement, and there's a cost there, too. It's not as obvious, but I think there's definitely a cost, and I say that as a parent who struggles uh, yeah. with this issue. I love protecting my kids. And, yeah, but, I I, <laughs> but my dad my yeah. dad used to say uh, it's important to, to walk barefoot because the grass feels good and uh, it's uh, we're not so good, I think, in our generation and letting our kids go barefoot. Um, let's turn – I want to make sure we talk about some of the um, ecological examples you give because your discussion of hurricanes uh, – we talked a little bit about forest fires, but the, the hurricane discussion and other natural disasters is extremely interesting – uh, talk about uh, Hurricane Sandy and its impact on New York and how that was affected by past, both by our income, our growth, and, and our increasing affluence, but also um, by some things we had done in the past to make it more likely that people lived in its path. Yeah, well, Hurricane Sandy was the second deadliest, excuse me, the second costliest storm in U.S. history uh, after Katrina, and um, it certainly had a pretty profound impact both on the economy and on politics, frankly. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York, said the storm caused him to uh, endorse um, the Demo- uh, Barack Obama because he decided the storm elevated in his mind the importance of climate change. Now, I do believe that climate change is happening, that it uh, has man-made origins, but the d- data and the evidence does not tell us that Sandy was um, a consequence of climate change. It is definitely the case that over time, storms, uh, we're getting more costly storms, but this is almost entirely a consequence of the fact that we're putting more and more valuable infrastructure on the coast. New York City, as it turns out, is perfectly situated to be hit a couple of times a century by a very damaging storm. And the reason sometimes people are shocked by it is because they don't come along very often. The last one before Hurricane Sandy had been in 1938. It was called the Great New England Hurricane. And um, actually, am I getting confused? Maybe it was the Long Island Express. It, um, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> sounds like um, a football player. I, you know, long, yeah. Sounds like a good running back. <laughs> It does, doesn't it? But it was a very damaging event, and it actually carved out new inlets along Long Island. Um, But by the time um, Sandy had come along, people had forgotten about that. And a lot happened in New York in the meantime. A lot of these um, uh, uh, crummy little houses on the the Jersey Shore and the Long Island had become these multi-million dollar mansions. You'd open like airports and tunnels and so forth. Um, In my book, there's a fascinating chart that shows the value of of structures in the 100-year flood zone 
of New York City. And you can see this number just shooting up over the last 70 or 80 years as, as, as we put more and more valuable infrastructure right on, New York, uh, right on the edges of New York City. So um, the catastrophe experts, people like insurance uh, c- consultants who do this for a living, they were not at all surprised that something like Sandy would come along and have the cost that it did because they had said, well, what do you expect when you put all this valuable infrastructure right in the path of where we know a hurricane one day is going to hit? And we can expect more of this going forward for two reasons. One is because as the climate gets warmer, um, the sea levels will rise and we'll get more variability in climate. But also because not just in the United States, but around the world, more people are settling on the coast. We have cities like Guangzhou and Shanghai and Mumbai and Jakarta. These are the most rapidly growing agglomerations of of, um, uh, of people and industry in the world. And they are all sitting right on the water, uh, getting sitting smack in the path of storms and floods. So we are going to have more Sandys in the future. Yeah, well, one of my favorite uh, things in your uh, in your book, it's just a trivial thing, but I just loved it. Um, the picture of where the biggest damage was in Hurricane Sandy was property that didn't literally did not exist a hundred years. I think it was it would be a hundred years ago. It'd be I think that's right. But basically, uh, we, yeah, sixteen oh nine. What was it? Uh, 1609, that's when the uh, original Manhattan Island is uh, shown in that map. So in 1609, Manhattan was smaller because we've reclaimed land. We've added land. I know people like to say land is fixed. I, I, I think that's a very misleading idea. It seems fixed, but it's not fixed. For one thing, you can build up. You can build higher build buildings. But the other part is you can literally add land. You can take stuff that's water and turn it into inhabitable territory. And we've done that in Manhattan because it's profitable. And that's where the worst damage was. If we hadn't been, had the ability to do that, the damage from Sandy would have, would it have been smaller? Actually, now that I think about it, so maybe it's just that it was close to the edge. Maybe I'm being a little bit, maybe that's a little bit misleading. What do you think about that? No, no, I think that's just something after you're saying, says she was exactly that that if you look at the land that's been reclaimed corresponds almost exactly to where Hurricane Sandy was. And this is not an uncommon thing. Low-lying areas and reclaimed areas are always like that. Uh, 60% of the Netherlands is below sea level, and these, that is why the Netherlands is very vulnerable to storms and flooding. And um, so the way I like to say it is that over the last four centuries, New York took all this land from the sea, and then in 2012, the sea asked for it back. <laughs> and now, But the other point I want to make is that this isn't necessarily a bad thing, because it's not like that land was wasted. New York did something very valuable with that land over those 400 years. They built up a very prosperous city. And this is an important thing to remember, uh, the larger point, is that sometimes taking the risk of a disaster like that also increases your productive capacity. So New York had the ability to rebuild after Sandy because it was such a prosperous place. This is the irony is that the very things that make cities like New York, like Miami, like Hong Kong vulnerable to storms are also the same things that make them prosperous. You know, proximity to water is, is, has long been associated with being a commercial center. People like living next to the water. Uh, nowadays, where intellectual rather than physical capital is the driver of e- economic growth, smart, talented people want to live next to each other. And that's what you have in places like New York, London, and Hong Kong. And what this means is that even though they will very periodically be severely damaged by a storm, they have the GDP, they have the capital, they have the means to actually rebuild afterwards. So it's not necessarily 
shocking or even bad that these places will periodically sustain this damage. What we as a society want is to make them as resilient to the damage as possible, not to say the water must be kept out at all means or like even more radically just move the city somewhere else. But in the design and maintenance of those cities, make uh, anticipate that these events will come along and ensure that you can recover as quickly as possible afterwards. Yeah, I just want to say, because it's, it's fun, I want to mention that across right in front of the Hoover Institution is a fountain on the campus of Stanford University. And there's a quote from uh, Herman Melville in front of that on that fountain's uh, edge. And I'm going to read the passage from Moby Dick that uh, at the end of this passage is the quote from uh, that's on that fountain. So this is uh, Herman Melville. He says, take he says, say you're in the country in some highland of lakes, take almost any path you please and ten to one, it carries you down in a dale and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There's magic in it. Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in his deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water, if water there be in all that region. Should you ever be athirst in the great American desert, try this experiment if your caravan happens to be supplied with a metaphysical professor. Yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever. And that last <laughs> phrase, meditation and water are wedded forever, is what's um, inscribed on, at that fountain. And that, it's just, that may be one, it's one of the most beautiful lines because the, the word wedded, W-E-D-D-E-D, also sounds like wet, wetted with W-E-T-T-D. So it's a real, it's a work of, um, it's a work of genius. He, he says later on, by the way, we're Niagara but a cataract of sand. Would you dra- Would you travel your thousand miles to see it. So we do like, as human beings, for whatever reason, we do find water attractive. It's why there is uh, huge population uh, and intensities at, at, at the water's edge, and it's why there's going to be destruction of human, tragically, of life and property when um, inevitably that water doesn't stay where we hope it stays. Yeah. Um- can I mention something because you yeah, uh, sure. you brought up the the Hoover Institution? Well, yeah. in my book, I actually talk a bit about Herbert Hoover, who I think is an interesting figure in American history. Because in my book, I sort of describe many of the tensions between our desire to make everything more complicated and safer, and the opposing desire to actually let nature play its uh, play uh, have its way, as a tension between engineers. And ecologists and Herbert Hoover is still as far, uh, yeah, Herbert Hoover is the only president who was once an engineer, and the engineering philosophy ran through many of the policies that he pursued and advocated yep. as a president. And before, I can't remember who it was. And before yeah, that, he I was an expert yeah. fighting famine, trying to help people. He was that's right. He saw you know, it as a logistical, a logistical yeah. problem. You just have to. Yes, there's a lot to admire it. about Hoover. I mean, and. Uh, I can't remember who it was who called him the most innocent bystander in history yeah. <laughs> because a lot of people have the myth that he basically stood by and allowed Correct. the Depression Not to happen. And he actually tried to do a lot to stop it. Much of but which Roosevelt said, did and more, <laughs> did, yeah. did just more of. And it didn't work so well either, but he get credit for it. It's fascinating. My father was an engineer. My brother's an engineer. I have a lot of sort of I have a sort of a connection to engineers. And when I was actually visiting the Hoover Institution a few years ago, I was watch, I went into the Hoover Institution Memorial there. And I saw a quote from him that he wrote in the 1950s. He said it was the engineer's duty 
to clothe the bare bones of science with life, comfort, and hope. Mm-hmm. And I found that just Great such a quote. profound <laughs> statement. And again, it fully captures this um, instinct that I'm talking about throughout my book, not just on the part of our uh, technological engineers, but our economic engineers and our environmental engineers. That is what they're trying to do. They're trying to clothe the bare bones of a wild society with life, comfort, and hope. And so it's difficult for me philosophically to say they shouldn't do that because isn't that what civilization is for? It just it's just we just need to remind from time to time that they can't do everything, and we shouldn't ask too much of them. Yeah, I'm more of an ecologist, but uh, and and I often make that contrast between ecology or biology and uh, and leaving things alone on one on the one hand and solving it, engineering it, fixing it uh, on the other. And I think it's um, you have to know where it works and where it doesn't. You point out in the book that airplanes have gotten safer and safer, and that's mainly the triumph of the engineers. Uh, it's a different kind of complexity, I would argue, than, say, the financial system. Yeah, or even automobiles, for example. Uh, you know, will, will driverless cars make us safer? I think so. But on the other hand, there's been some evidence that the driverless cars are so sensitive to stop signs that they stop too fast and people keep hitting them. So (laughs) the truth of the matter is we don't really know where these things will go. These are fascinating questions. And obviously, this is where science and economics, uh, the scientists and the economists can all make a contribution by studying our behavior. Uh, To give you one example, um, we talked about football helmets. Let's talk about uh, motorcycle and bicycle helmets. Yeah. Uh, some people don't like to be forced to wear motorcycle helmets, but the research does show that motorcycle helmets do save lives and they don't seem to cause offsetting behavior. But the research also shows that bicycle helmets don't seem to save lives. And, yes, if you're wearing and, a helmet. Sorry, you were going to say? Well, there's, there are actually studies. I don't know if they're any good, but there are studies that argue that that people who wear helmets are more likely to be hit by a car, either because they're being more reckless or the drivers of the cars think subconsciously. It's hard to believe, right? But it's yeah. a real, that's the ultimate Pelsman effect. You see a guy with a helmet on, you think, hey, he's fine. Okay, well, sorry, I'll knock him yeah, over. Yeah, it's a horrible, see, that it's a horrible, yeah. horrible thought. I don't know if it's really true, but it, yeah, there's some I, those, evidence those that been, it is. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. Those are very small studies. But what the larger studies do, do seem to show is that, look, you know, um, I think wearing a helmet on a bicycle is a great idea. I always wear a helmet. My kids always wear helmets. The question arises, is should the government force you to wear a helmet? Because it turns out when you do, fewer people ride bikes. If fewer people ride bikes, they don't get the cardiovascular benefits of riding bicycles. The community doesn't get the environmental benefit of people riding bicycles. And here's the kicker, is that with fewer bicycles on the road, drivers are less aware of them and they appear to drive yeah. faster. So the absence of cyclists actually makes it a little bit more risky for those who are there. And that's why I think that the case for bicycle helmet laws is much weaker than the case for motorcycle helmet laws. Yeah, and you give the example of, of airplane safety where as you make planes safer, you do drive up the cost, and that encourages more people to drive. And driving is much more dangerous. So there is yeah. a, there's an incredible trade-off there that isn't obvious to an engineer. Yeah. Although one of the interesting lessons I, I drew from aviation is uh, I talked a lot about how the sense of safety makes can actually bring on danger. A sense of danger can bring on safety. And I actually think aviation is a classic example of that because so, so many people are afraid to fly and, and airplane accidents get so much publicity that I think it drives the industry and their regulators to go overboard almost with, the, uh, with um, their uh, safety requirements. And that's one of the reasons why it is so incredibly safe to fly. Yeah. And you have some great I encourage readers to check out listeners to become readers and check out their discussion of air, airline safety there generally in their book because it's really uh, it's I, I learned a lot in there that I didn't know. My guest today has been Greg Epp. His his book is foolproof. Greg, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Oh, Russ, thank you very much for having me. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.